Welcome to Arconnect Sessions, episode 95. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Kim. This week, we're joined by Evan Chakroff. Evan's an architectural designer currently based out of Seattle, and we recently published a piece by him entitled No Particular Place to Go, Cuba 2016, documenting his experience visiting Cuba's late modernist architecture. Thanks for joining us today, Evan. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So you've been a regular name on on Arconnect for a while in both our editorial through pieces that you've written for us in the past, as well as in the forum and the comments. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about yourself, what you do. Sure. Well, as you said, I'm an architectural designer here in Seattle and worked in a number of places. I've worked abroad for a number of years in Italy and Switzerland and and in China and uh, through an ongoing relationship with Ohio State, which is my alma mater. I've had the opportunity to run a few um, architectural study tours, which have led to uh, some publications and, and a lot of great experiences. So really what I've been attempting to do in my kind of side work outside of the normal uh, day-to-day has been to try to think more about architecture and urbanism and how that relates to the economies and and the politics and culture. And so that's what I attempt to um, to think about. And in thinking through these issues, I, I do write some pieces uh, from time to time. And, and I think the Cuba essay is an example of that. So what drew you to Cuba? Was that just your own personal interest? Well, I had a a kind of longstanding interest in colonial architecture. And I suppose this goes back to the fact that my parents made a move down to the U.S. Virgin Islands back about 15 years ago. And and so when I was in college, I got to visit them a few times. And and they live on St. Croix, which has flown under or it's it's been under seven different flags, I think, is is what they say. And so it, it changed hands quite a bit during the colonial period in the Caribbean. And so on, on St. Croix, it's kind of the landscape is marked by these old sugar plantation windmills or the, the shells of the old windmills that were constructed by the Danish when they were controlling the island. And so I thought that's been in the back of my mind for a long time. And after uh, living abroad in Shanghai for a number of years, I've gotten more and more interested in how the colonial governments sponsored or supported different architectural styles and different forms of urbanism. And so bringing that around to Cuba was a pretty short jump. And uh, especially as Cuba was in the news over the past few years, and as the U.S. relaxed our regulations, I decided to take the opportunity and go see what the the current state of things was and and try to do some preparation for a, a future student tour, which I'll be I'll be running this coming March with Ohio State again. So I'm curious about the uh, it seems like in the essay that we published of yours, it seemed like it was a carefully selected group of projects that you profiled. What was the research that you took going into this trip and kind of undertaking this essay? Well, basically, as I was researching the trip, there's not really a lot out there in English on Cuban architecture, at least beyond the classic uh, Revolution of Forms by John Loomis and a series of guidebooks put out by the Spanish group, the Junta de Andalusia, that has a kind of exhaustive guidebook series. In doing the research, obviously, there's a a lot been written on Cuba outside of, of architecture, but I wanted to go and basically see the the major monuments of the the early socialist government. And so my focus in the essay and in my trip was on this time period from the late 50s through the 70s, when the Cuban government and construction industry sort of shifted from these one-off projects to more of a, a regime of, of prefabricated work. 
So the, the selection of work in the essay, I'd say it's it's really fairly arbitrary. The art schools obviously get a lot of press. They're pretty incredible, and they have a, a long history of analysis and a, a interesting history of how respected they are locally, which has, has shifted a few times. And then in finding the... Um, say Las Ruinas in the, the Parque Lenin was one that I had seen in some of the other books, like in the Havana Guide to Modern Architecture by Eduardo Rodriguez. That had kind of stood out to me after visiting as being something that was underreported and and pretty quite amazing. And then in the last several sections of the essay, getting into some of the constructions from the 90s forward, it seemed to be almost totally unreported in U.S. circles and architectural circles, which was this kind of trend of you know, capitalism coming back to the island in a big way and tourist resorts getting built up and a, a dual economy emerging, which has impacted the way that not necessarily city planning, but the way that people access different parts of the city and different parts of the country. So Evan, I want to ask some, you know, the fun stories. I was in the Moscow in the Soviet Union in 1991. So things had just sort of opened up. And I think most people who traveled Eastern Europe at that time have some stories about using, and you mention in the essay, using things like bribes and good luck and, uh, you know, having a good conversation with someone, even though you've just met them 30 seconds ago. Like how many of those kinds of stories do you have to share that relate to the buildings that you were actually able to go see? Well, you know, not too many, actually. The, uh, the, <laughs> sorry to disappoint, but the one that stands out is is at the art schools. It was a really funny situation because I had a local, you know, a local driver and a local guide who was a trained as an architect, worked as a, a real estate agent, essentially. And he was able to convince the security guards at the art school to to let us in. I think they wanted 20 bucks or something, uh-huh. something reasonable uh, from my end. And then it was an odd scenario because once you got inside the campus past the gate, they had clearly, you know, signs labeled in English pointing out all the different buildings and suggesting a route that tourists could take around the complex, but it was obviously not currently open and accessible to just anyone. And and so I thought that was interesting and kind of represented a, a shift in their attitudes. My impression of that is that as the U.S. opens more and they might have more tourists and more you know interested people coming by, uh, they may have wanted to lock it down a bit because it is in such disrepair and doesn't represent the country the way that they would like it to be represented. I had another another instance like that where I went to the the Club Nautico, which was uh, a building by Max Borges Recio, built in the in 1950, I think. And our car and and driver were chased out of the parking lot because the security guard there said, "No photos. We can't have <laughs> pictures of this getting out uh, in the current conditions." I think they were planning on renovating and and fixing it up over the next few years, but it was in pretty bad shape. So that's kind of um, kind of the scene there. And aside from that, I didn't really feel any kind of of pressure to stay within any certain area. I didn't really notice much of a you know police presence. There were some rumors from other people in the in the group I was traveling with about plain clothes cops who were patrolling tourist areas as a kind of security. But for the most part, I I don't think it quite matches what you know the post Soviet scene might have been like. Not that I would know. I've never traveled there. But it is interesting to me to see how, you know, having having studied Chinese history and having lived in Shanghai to see the kind of creeping of of capitalism into a socialist country. There are definitely some parallels. 
Yeah, it's a little worrying that it's uh, going to disappear quickly, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. So if you were to take another trip to Cuba, are there parts that you didn't have time to visit that you would like to go to next time or maybe uh, recommend other architects that are taking a trip there to go check out? Well, definitely. And so things I didn't touch on in the essay uh, were some of the other cities I, I visited last year and will be visiting again this year when I take students. And those are some, a few more cities that are on what seems to be coalescing as a standard tourist itinerary, which would be some of the agricultural landscapes around Vinales, the UNESCO heritage sites at Trinidad and Cienfuegos, and uh, some of the and cities like Santa Clara or Matanzas. So these are interesting because Trinidad, for instance, has a really well-preserved Spanish colonial center, you know, to the point where it's got UNESCO funds just flowing in and it's, you know, the cobblestones have all been repaired and everything's painted and it's uh, really well-maintained. It's interesting beyond that because once you get outside of that UNESCO radius, you see these prefab apartment buildings, just rows and rows of them um, off into the landscape, and you see the kind of poverty that exists outside of these cleaned up tourist zones. In Cienfuegos, uh, it's interesting for a different reason. And, and this was a city founded by, if I'm getting my history right, it was founded and laid out by French expats who had been essentially kicked out of Haiti during the, the Haitian Revolution and had settled in Cuba and took some of their planning practices. And so you have a, a tightly gridded city with public squares and boulevards that are, are kind of based on Enlightenment urban planning principles. Getting... Um, Further and further east would be one of my goals if I was to go back. And when I take students this coming March, I'll be retracing my steps a bit. If I had another trip planned, I would definitely want to go further east and see Santiago de Cuba and some of the other cities, Camagüey, uh, down towards the eastern end of the island. And I think when you read on the geography of Cuba, the east side is somewhat less developed. The highway doesn't continue at its large width and uh, and large capacity past the midpoint of the island. And so getting out to that side of the country is a little more difficult. And I think that'll probably remain off the tourist track for a, a bit longer than the Havana, Vinales, Trinidad loop. So Evan, so many questions. The first is that, you know, looking at uh, Park Lenin, you know, it's, it's it feels... Uh... <laughs> It feels like, you know, the one thing about architecture is it always has a return. So you look at this, uh, even though it's grown over, you could still see the, the, the beauty and the elements of the structure. And it feels, it feels very present. <laughs> it, like it would, uh, it would fit today. Yet the, you know, obviously we, we all know about the cars being stuck in the 1950s. How are people thinking about preservation in Cuba? Are they concerned about preservation on the urban side and how to keep some of these structures going forward so that they still have them for, you know, future? Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating question, right? I don't really have a good answer for that, not knowing what the local people really think about it. But my impression would be that there is a huge impulse to preserve a lot of the colonial architecture, especially. And you see that in, you know, in the approach that UNESCO takes and the, the city centers that are maintained. It seems that the the early socialist era stuff from the 60s and 70s is falling apart, frankly. And it seems like that's a, a struggle for preservationists. And then the constructions from the, you know, early 1900s through the, the 50s, it varies. It varies, I think, based on whether it's public government buildings or private homes. And 
uh, with the latter being being better preserved. I think the interesting thing to me about the the preservation approach in Cuba is one example is is the city historian of Havana who has been working. His name is. Um, Spengler. And he's been working for the past few decades to preserve the the downtown of Havana Vieja and take it back to a kind of colonial splendor, while at the same time funneling money from tourist activities into that preservation effort. So there's a associated company called Habana Guex that essentially runs souvenir shops and tourist hotels that is a part of the office of the city historian, which I found really fascinating. But what it it seems to mean to me is that by doing this, they're able to divert some of this tourist revenue into public institutions and into housing and into preservation that actually has an impact on the local citizens. So when you go downtown in Havana Vieja, you'll still see schools that are running and housing that's a little run down, but people still live in this downtown area and, and can mingle with the tourists to a certain degree. And so it's not this disnified, you know, perfect simulation of the old colonial center. It seems like it's still a a living city. And so I think that approach seems to be working out fairly well for them. And and the city historian has gotten a lot of commendations from, you know, from the locals and from the the Cuban government for finding this method that seems to work well for for both sides of the equation. So, you know, I was trying to avoid this topic because I think to look through the Western lens at Cuba is kind of, you know, obvious. But when did you go, actually, to Cuba? I was there in December last year, 2015 to 16 over over the new year. Okay, so this is before Trump. BT. <laughs> yeah, right. So you have no sense AT then. <laughs> no, no. But I'll I'll get it. I'll have to revisit and um after I go, I'll be back in March of this year, so I'll get to see what differences there are if any. With the the people on the ground, um what is the sense of the people about, you know, this opening up and Americans visiting? Are they I, I would imagine there's it's it's a diverse discussion and that it's met with some trepidation, obviously, <laughs> knowing what we do to countries. But I was sure there would be some sense of excitement and, and hope in that. But is it is it as conflicted as I, I, I seem to I want to make it out to be or? Well, at the time that I was there, people seemed thrilled to see Americans and talk with them, talk with us as much as we could through the language barrier. I think that you know, may change, obviously, but there seemed to be a, a wholehearted embrace of the American people, at least coming to Cuba, you know, if not the, um, you know, the possible influx of, you know, mobs of tourists. And, you know, I'm conflicted about it as well, because as an architect and as a, you know, urbanist, I'd like to see these great old colonial cities preserved as much as possible. I'd, I'd like to, you know, I don't want to go back and see a Starbucks on every corner on a personal level, but I'm also, as one of the tourists, I'm, I'm adding to that influx and that, you know, coming wave of, of people who might have a, a big impact on the country. But I think, you know, I've traveled around quite a bit under, you know, in different eras of, of U.S. leadership. And I'd say traveling to Cuba was was similar to me to traveling through Europe during the first years of the Obama presidency, where you had people saying, like, this is a, a new era and this is a positive thing for both sides. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens when I return in March and um, see if that impression changes. So 
seeing that you're an architectural designer, urbanist, any comments on the, uh, just now what I see now is the confirmation of Ben Carson as the housing and urban development secretary. Yeah. <laughs> yep. What are your thoughts on that? Oh man. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's not brain surgery, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. Oh, Cuba sounds better and better right now, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, Evan, you've uh, covered China extensively, as we've reported about your book in the past, The Architectural Guide to China. You've just gone to Cuba. Uh, if you could go anywhere right now to investigate the, the local uh, culture and architecture, where would that be that you haven't been yet? Oh, man. Well, I'd say that that Brazil is, is high on my list, if only because I've, I've traveled extensively through Asia and Europe, but I've never been to South America or, or Central America, for that matter. And so I'm um, just... Selfishly, I think there's a lot of great uh, things to see there, and I think getting, you know, getting my feet wet in the in the Caribbean, in a sense, is, has inspired me to go and look at um, more of these post-colonial urban and just try to investigate that that side of the world. I think, you know, thinking about how architectural style develops, I've been curious to see how different countries are are impacted and how different countries deal with their colonial legacy through architectural style and urban form. So I think there's there's lots of fertile, you know, there's a lot of material in South America for that. I'd also really, and this is out there, but I would love to go to Antarctica and uh, see some of the new structures being built down there. Yeah. Well, take us with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was disappointed I couldn't go to Cuba with you. Well, we have been talking about having a, like a, a sessions meetup in Cuba one of these days, right? Yeah, go while it's still go before it's go too late, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, Evan, personally, I've been really fascinated by the 360 photos and videos that that you've been posting on your blog on Arconnect, as well as the stuff you've been posting on Facebook. I, I noticed a really cool one from the March the other day. I mean, I know that a lot of architects are, are really curious about this technology. And for me, it seems like a technology that has a lot of potential to be used to express the qualities of, of architectural space. So could you talk a little bit about that experimentation that you've been doing and, and what you would uh, advise to architects that are interested in getting getting into that? Sure, sure. Well, I kind of came to it through uh, various paths. And on one side, it's just my, my interest in photography and, and having been a, you know, amateur photographer for a number of years and just seeing this as a new tool, you know, the, the widest lens you could get, right? 360. And then over the past year or so, I've been seeing the, the birth of this really, really cool virtual reality industry and scene here in Seattle. So the, there are lots of ways to, to get your architectural design into a VR headset. And then from the other side, the documentation also feeds into that. So once you have your 360 photos, then you can easily set those up as a virtual tour. You can view those in, in your Google Cardboard or in one of the, the HTC Vive or one of the more professional level headsets. And so coming at that from both sides, I've really been thinking about how you can use quote unquote virtual reality in architectural practice and one way is to, you know, get your your design model into a headset, walk around and view the space at a, a virtual one to one scale. But then the other side with the 360 photos, 
is, I think, the first step towards reality capture. And so you see companies like Matterport with their custom hardware, and, and they, they market to realtors basically as a way of documenting a existing building and, and viewing that through a, a browser or through virtual reality. And so the 360 photo tours are a step in that direction. And it's really exciting to see consumer-grade hardware being able to, to start approaching that pro-level stuff. And so, you know, it also comes to my my experience as a kind of architectural tour guide and and traveler being able to go to a space and and set up a 360 camera in a few different places. You can start recreating that tour, you know, from, you know, it's cliché from the comfort of your own home, but what it does is it gives you the full picture. And so it gets beyond photography and beyond the composition of a frame to talk more about the spatial relations between different parts of a building or different parts of an urban scene. And so that's, it's really interesting to me. And I think there are definitely ways that that architects can use this as a way of documenting their buildings, but also as a way of of thinking more deeply about how people use spaces. And the 360 camera just kind of opens up possibilities for that. Well, Evan, I know that your time is short today. So before we finish up, Ken has a couple questions that he always likes to follow up with our guests. So Evan, what are you uh, reading lately and what are you listening to? Oh, good question. Well, I've been reading the um, in fiction. I just finished The Three-Body Problem by, can't pronounce the first name, but uh, Liu, this uh, Chinese science fiction author. And it's a, it's a fascinating book about a ties into a lot of <laughs> ties into a lot of the things we've been talking about today actually it comes it, it's a story that starts during the cultural revolution in China and it features a virtual reality video game that that alternates between periods of chaos and stability so it has some some historical relevance there for China obviously and then it goes and and it turns into this alien invasion story and the preparations the world has to make for that really really fascinating book lots of fun and listening to I've I've had the Hamilton soundtrack on <laughs> on loop for probably about the last 4 months after I, I I came to it late but now I can't can't get out of it yeah I try to listen to that like once a week <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's just phenomenal I'm a Hamilton soundtrack virgin. I haven't delved into that yet, but I think I have to now. And there's a mix one too. Really? Yes. There you go. <laughs> Even more of a reason. Well, thanks so much, Evan, for joining us today. Yeah, happy to do it. We'll make sure to link to the article and and uh, some of the things that we talked about today in the show notes. Uh, and thanks to everybody else out there listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. And you can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com with suggestions or feedback. Thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll talk to you again in two weeks.